All right, so here we go. We're working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. This morning we'll be in chapter 16. But I want to get you caught up just a little bit. A couple of weeks ago now, we had our banquet here at the church, and uh, we heard from uh, Joshua Oshfall. Josh is the pastor of our sister church, which is now called Baker Bible Church? Baker Creek Creek Bible Church. Josh is a great guy, and he delivered a very timely message for our body. He was talking about change. There's a lot of change coming, and the church has been, this church here has been in a state of flux for the past year or so. And Josh gave us just a really timely message, a word of encouragement. Um, If you missed it, uh, I'm sorry for you because it was so good. He could have preached that message out of this chapter because, as the Lord would have it, that's what we're dealing with here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's this idea of transition and change and the Lord beginning a new work and ending an old work. This is probably not felt uh, quite as poignantly for us today because we we don't really appreciate the historical situation. So since I've been here preaching through this book, I've done my best to really set the stage um, for what was happening in the nation of Israel at this time. So this is what I just want to revisit and get get our minds around before we dig into chapter 16. Remember, we are in the period of the judges. And if you're not familiar with that time period, it's a period of uh, national unrest, national anarchy. In fact, in the book of Judges, which describes this period, the common refrain is, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Chaos ruled. It was a time of lawlessness, a time of increased sin, a time of God's discipline on the nation. So when we start 1 Samuel, we are still in that time period. And then... In a prophetless age, God gives his people a prophet, the man Samuel. And slowly, very slowly, this happens over a period of decades. I know it's taken us weeks, but this is just, this is decades. Over a period of decades, God begins to unify this loose federation of tribes and clans and people groups known as the nation of Israel. He begins to bring them together under the leadership of Samuel. And the nation begins to transition out of their dark ages and into a period they hope of light and national prosperity and security and peace. But then the enemies attack. And the people say, we need someone to fight our battles. Give us a king. And God says, I'm your king. They say, no, we don't want you as a king. We want an actual king. And he says, all right. You don't, but you think you do. I'll let you have it. And he raises up Saul. And as we've seen, Saul is not the answer. He was once. Chapter 11, we saw that when he delivered the people from Nahash the Ammonite. But that's it. Since that one event, that one good thing that Saul did, it's been a downward spiral of sin and rebellion. And we saw last week, that he was rejected as Israel's king. God is going to remove him from office. He's going to take the kingship away from him. And he's going to raise up a new man. So here's the transition. Put yourself in their sandals. You're in the dark ages. You start coming out of this. You get a king. But now your king rebels against the revealed word of God. And we're starting all over again. We're a leaderless people. God, what are you going to do? When are you going to... Bring the man after your own heart. That's what you called him in the text. 
When is that going to happen? We have no leadership. We have a spiritual rebel leading us. When are you going to show up and make things right? This is a time of anxiety, a time of heightened fear, a time of unrest, a time of uncertainty. And as Josh talked about, for us, it's a time of change and transition. And I was just blown away this week as I was working my way through the text by this one simple point. God takes care of his people and empowers his leaders for change. God takes care of his people and empowers his leaders for change. That's what we're going to see this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Let's work our way through this chapter. Follow along with me. Here's what the text says. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? How long are you going to mourn? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. All right, here we go. Lord, you said you were going to do it. We're getting right to it. You just rejected Saul as being king, and we see that uh, Samuel was weeping and mourning over this. This is what the people need. They need centralized leadership. If it's not going to be the prophet over the people, it's not going to be God over the people, you're, you're choosing to let them have a king. This is how it's got to be. We got our king. And now, we've got to take him out. God, show up. Save your people. And he's going to. He tells the prophet, how long are you going to mourn? Come on, man. You, out of everybody in this nation, knows that I've got this. I'm going to take care of my people, and I'm going to empower my leaders. So he says, get ready. You're going to be anointing a new king. He says, fill your horn with oil. In this time period, when they anointed a new person for leadership, they would do so with oil. They would pour oil on their head, and it was symbolic of their anointing um, for leadership and for power. And this anointing represented uh, God's spirit coming upon that person for a specific task. And we're going to see that later on in the, in the text here. So he says, Samuel, I'm going to send you out. Get ready, get your horn, fill it with oil, and go. You're going to Jesse of Bethlehem. And Samuel's got a very good question in verse 2. He says this, how can I go? If Saul hears about this, he's going to kill me. Yeah. So Saul knows that he has been rejected as king. So now Samuel, the prophet, is worried that if he deviates from his normal routine, remember, he is uh, uh, he's what's called an itinerant prophet. He travels on circuit serving as judge throughout the land. If he deviates from his normal route and now he's going to go to Bethlehem, Saul's going to notice that something is up. He's deviating from the norm. So no doubt Saul has Samuel being watched. And if he does anything out of the ordinary... He's afraid to lose his power. He's afraid to lose his kingdom. He's going to take care of that. And Saul might actually kill Samuel. That's what he's worried about. He says in verse 2, how can I go? Saul's going to kill me if he hears about it. The Lord recognizes this. So he prepares 
uh, a reason for the prophet to go visit Jesse in Bethlehem. This is what he says later on in verse 2. He says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. All right, so he says, take a heifer, go to Jesse in Bethlehem, sacrifice him, and you'll have a feast there. You've got a reason to go. Okay, now, what's a heifer? Anybody wonder about that? I'm like, it's a cow, right? But it's a a specific kind of cow, so I just looked it up. A heifer is a female cow who's never had babies. So this was important for sacrificial reasons. So he says, take a heifer and go and offer it as a sacrifice. This is your reason to deviate from your normal route that you go throughout the land. And go to Jesse, invite his family to the feast, and while you're doing that, I'm going to show you which one of his sons is going to be our next king. Verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And they asked, do you come in peace? Yeah, that's kind of weird, right? One of two things is happening. First of all, if the prophet is coming at Saul's bidding, that's a terrifying prospect. Why are you here? But more than likely, here's what's happening. Write this passage down. You can look it up later. Deuteronomy 21, 1 to 9. Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 to 9. So in instances of unsolved murder, what would happen is the prophet would show up at a city unannounced, and he would try to figure out who the guilty party was, and if he couldn't figure that out, he would offer a sacrifice to atone for the murder. So the example that we see in the book of Deuteronomy is, hey, if you find a body in the field and you don't know who committed this murder, go to the nearest town, call the elders together, take a heifer with you and offer a sacrifice in order to atone for the unknown sin. Okay? So when the people of Bethlehem see the prophet coming with the heifer, they think that he is now initiating disciplinary action. They want to know, are we guilty? Did somebody commit a murder? Why is the prophet coming to us? This is out of the ordinary. So they're fearful, and that's why they ask the question, do you come in peace? Verse 5, Samuel replies, don't worry. Don't worry, no no one's died. I come in peace. I'm not here to resolve a murder. I'm here to offer a sacrifice. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated or he selected Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. All right? So he goes to this town. He announces his peaceful intentions and he singles out one family. I'm here to sacrifice and you will be my honored guests. Verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. And we learn here that Eliab is Jesse's oldest son. Here's what he says. Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. Why did he say that? Verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel... Do not consider his height or his appearance, for I have rejected him. 
The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the, say it with me, heart. Isn't this interesting? Here comes the prophet. He stands before the firstborn son and he says, hey, he's tall and good looking. Good things or bad things? Exactly. So if you are new to our study, we got to once again recap these two points. People singled out for their beauty in the Old Testament usually lead very bad lives. Things don't go well for them. So they oftentimes fail miserably or they undergo harsh circumstances. They have difficult lives. Beauty is not a good thing in the Old Testament. Neither is height. Everybody, with the exception of King Saul, well, I guess maybe including King Saul, people singled out for their height in the Old Testament are all enemies of Israel. If you're tall and you're good-looking, those are bad things. We saw that with Saul when we were introduced to him back in uh, either chapter 9 or chapter 10. The first thing the narrator who's telling the story says is, oh, here's Saul. He's tall and good-looking. That didn't go well for you the first time, Samuel. So here is Eliab standing before him, and he says, ah, good-looking and tall. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. No! Come on! We saw how this went with Saul. Don't look at the outward man. Okay, these, these externals, height and good looks and appearance and stature, I don't care about that stuff. It's not about the outside, it's about the inside. It's a hard issue, not an external thing, it's an internal thing. I don't care what he looks like. I don't care that you think he can lead you in battle. I don't care that he's good looking, that doesn't matter. What's his heart like? And God says, in no uncertain terms, I have rejected him. He's not my guy. Now, I want to know how this is happening. Right? So he's with this family. The sons are going to be paraded in front of him. And Saul is communicating the word of the Lord as they do. How? I mean, are you, are you ever get curious about the Bible? How's that happening? Like, do you hear an audible voice? I've rejected him. <laughs> Does only Samuel hear it? Is there some sort of a, an, an internal communication? Is he using, like, his priestly garments to figure it out? You've got to ask questions about the Bible. It's an amazing book. Verse 8, so then Jesse calls Abinadab, he's the number two son, and he has him pass in front of Samuel. Samuel says, uh, well, this is, this is really weird. Um, your firstborn son got rejected. Ugh, that's not going to go over well at Thanksgiving. That's a joke, go ahead. <laughs> now the second son, he's also been rejected this is weird, because normally what you do is you, you start at the top, and that's, that's the favored one. If not the favored one, we see this a lot of times in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, it's the second son who will receive the position of honor and blessing. Weird. This is the second son, he's also been rejected. The prophet says, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Son number three comes along, and Jesse makes Shema pass by. And these guys are just going on you know, parade before the prophet. The prophet is examining him as they go by. Here goes Shema. Samuel said, not the third one either. And the Lord has also not chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, 
hey, the, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Verse 11, so he asks Jesse, um, this is kind of embarrassing. I was here to anoint one of your boys, and none of them, uh, none of them seem to work out. Are these all the sons you have? Well, Jesse answered, they're still the youngest. He's out with the sheep. He's just out with the sheep. Okay, now remember, we looked at this earlier when we were looking at the person of Saul during his initial introduction. Israel's leaders in almost every book in the Old Testament are portrayed as shepherds. You're either a good shepherd or you're a bad shepherd. Was Saul a good shepherd or a bad shepherd? The dude lost a group of donkeys in the desert. Are you hiding behind a cactus? There's nowhere to go. How do you lose a herd of donkeys? So throughout the narrative, Saul is portrayed as the bad shepherd. But here's this eighth, this other, this insignificant son. So insignificant that he's not even invited back for the sacrifice. He doesn't matter. He's just kind of an extra. He's an add-on at the end. We weren't planning on having David. He just sort of happened. <laughs> the Lord had a plan, though, right? Um, yeah, I got this other one. He's with the sheep. He's a present shepherd. He's taking care of the sheep. In fact, we're going to see that in the book of 2 Samuel. David is actually called a good shepherd. I got this other son. He's tending the sheep. We're going to see in our study of chapter 17 in two weeks when we get back from vacation that um, his brothers actually use this as a taunt against him. The oldest son, Eliab, is like, why did you come to the battle? Where are those few sheep that you're supposed to be tending to in the wilderness? They make fun of him for this. But this is a sign to us, the readers, that he's going to be a good shepherd. Samuel says... Well, send for him. We're not going to sit down and eat this sacrificial meal until he shows up. Verse 12. So he sent for him, and he brought him in. He was glowing with health. And he had a fine appearance, and he was handsome. Ah. Okay, we know, we know God has a plan for him. But he's good looking. Are things going to go well for him or poorly? Poorly. Yeah. Now, he's going to do great things. He's going to secure the nation's borders. He's going to expand their borders. He's going to bring in peace and prosperity. He's going to bring in this unheralded period of greatness in the nation of Israel and hand off this amazing kingdom to his son Solomon. He's also going to be a channel of blessing to the world because Jesus comes from his family. All good things. How could it possibly go badly for him? Read 2 Samuel. It's an, it's an awful life this guy leads. Okay, you've been designated for great things. You're going to do great things. It's going to be hard. Your life is going to be hard. There's an interesting contrast. Okay, he's noted for his beauty, but if we back up a couple of verses to verse 11... Jesse, his dad, says, well, there is still the youngest. Okay, that word youngest can also mean the littlest, the littlest or the shortest. So we know that in terms of where he fits in the family tree, yeah, he's the youngest of the eight boys, 
but he's also the smallest in stature, and this probably had to do with his age. Uh, he's the youngest, so he's also the littlest, but there's a direct contrast being set up. People who are tall are Israel's enemies. Israel's enemies. So here comes the chosen one, the anointed one, the man after God's own heart. Yeah, he's good looking. He's going to have a rough life. But the text calls him a little. He's not tall. And that's a reason to celebrate. Amen? (laughs) So the Lord says to the prophet, rise up. This is my guy. Anoint him. Okay, imagine being big brother. Or brothers, you know, two to seven. But the shepherd kid is going to be the king over us? There's a major role reversal happening. This is a major time of change and transition. Verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. They're going to resent him in chapter 17, just a heads up. But from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. That's a symbolic thing with the anointing of the oil, but it's also an actual, physical tangible thing that happened in this man's life. And here's what's interesting. Look at the very next verse, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. He comes on David and he leaves Saul. He comes on David and he leaves Saul. In our study of the ministry of the spirit in the Old Testament as opposed to the New Testament, this is what we saw. In the New Testament, the spirit comes in us. The spirit indwells us. We don't really get how all that works. It's kind of mysterious to us. It's a little bit bizarre, but the Spirit of God is in us somehow. He empowers us, and we who are his children, we have him forever. He never leaves us. He's our comforter. He confirms our salvation. He leads and guides and directs. He's in us. In the Old Testament, the Spirit comes on people mightily, and he empowers them for specific tasks and roles and assignments. It seems to be temporary for the most part. We don't see the sort of permanent anointing taking place. But the Spirit is now on David, giving him the power he needs for his upcoming role. And the man who is king, who was anointed originally, the Spirit has left him. So this is what we see in verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, leaves. And in its place comes the opposite, an unholy spirit. We don't know exactly what is meant by this phrase. There's a couple of possibilities. This could be descriptive of mental illness, of mental illness. So in this part of the world, at this time in history, people associated mental illness with um, the spirit world, with demonic torture or demonic influence. And in fact, in the New Testament, we see a lot of demon possession. We don't see that so much nowadays, but it was very prevalent in the time of Christ. So those sorts of things, this mental anguish, is often uh, associated with uh, with the demonic. It it could be that Saul is just losing it. He's going crazy, and we're going to see a lot of instances of crazy in the rest of this book. It could be that there's an actual evil or harmful spirit that the Lord allows 
to punish Saul. That could be the case too. The language here could also be referring to a third possibility. It might just be that Saul is referring back or or reverting back to just being Saul. What we saw early in his call versus, uh, I'm sorry, chapters 9 and 10 in this book is that the spirit came on him and he was changed into a new man. Well, now the spirit is gone, so now he's back to being the old man. And it might just be that crazy Saul that we see is just crazy. It could be that. So either mental illness, a demonic activity of some sort, or just Saul being his sinful self. We're not sure exactly. Maybe it's all three. Maybe it's all three. This guy is a mess, as we're going to be seeing. But whatever's happening here, the Lord allows it to happen as punishment for Saul for being a spiritual rebel rebel and rejecting the revealed word of God. Verse 15. Saul's attendants said to him, and here we go, what's a theme we've seen throughout Saul's career? His servants are always smarter than him. So here we go with Saul, his servants giving him good advice. They say, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Something's happening in your brain, man. You're losing it. So we understand that this is an evil spirit from the Lord. So now the text says, let our Lord, but they're referring to Saul as the commander. Let our Lord command his servants to search for someone who can play the lyre. The lyre is kind of like a harp guitar thing. It's a stringed instrument. And it was believed that when you would play these stringed instruments, it would ward off evil spirits. So their understanding is there's an evil spirit tormenting you. Let's play some music and the spirit will go away. So we're going to go find somebody who can play the lyre, and we will ward off these evil spirits. He will play, and when the evil spirit from God comes on you, you'll feel better. All right? Good advice. If your worldview is that instruments can ward off evil spirits, then I guess this is sound advice. So this is what they propose. Verse 17, Saul says to his servants, his attendants, find somebody who plays well and bring him to me. The guy's suffering. Verse 18, and this is interesting. What we're going to see in chapter 17 is that Jesse's three oldest sons are servants of Saul. Remember the rights of the king. The king gets to take your kids. The king gets to turn them into his servants and his warriors and his commanders. So he can only take your three oldest sons if you have several sons because you don't want the family line to die out in case they die in battle. So he's got Jesse's three oldest kids. So this is just me kind of reading in the white spaces, like in between the lines here. But this is what might be happening. We know that three of Jesse's kids are serving in Saul's royal court. And we hear this. One of these unnamed servants in verse 18 says, Hey, you know what? I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's good at instruments. He's a brave man, and he's a warrior. And we find out in chapter 17 he's killed bears and he's killed lions and stuff like that. So yeah, he's a warrior. He speaks well, and he's a fine-looking man. Somebody worthy to be in the king's court. And, most importantly, the Lord is with him. Who knows about David's anointing at this point? Just talk, just pretend, this is just talk, just talk to me. Who is it? Samuel and the family. It could be that this is one of his three older brothers 
attempting to get David into the royal court. He knows that David's going to be king. So maybe, maybe this is just a family attempt to kind of speed things up a little bit. Again, it's me kind of reading into it, but it's a possibility. What's interesting to me in this verse, verse 18, is all, all the descriptions. Listen to them again. You have a musician. He's brave. He's a warrior. He speaks well. He's good-looking. And the Lord is with them. With the exception of being good-looking, none of those things apply to Saul. He's not a warrior, and he's not brave. He's a coward. I don't know if he speaks well, but what we are going to see is that he raves like a lunatic. The text says that. Yeah, he's good-looking, but that's a bad thing. And the Lord is no longer with him. So, I heard of a guy who can help you. And he's the exact opposite of you, O king. Verse 19. Saul sent messengers to Jesse, and he said, Send me your son David, who's with the sheep. He's an insignificant shepherd. I want him to be in my royal court. So Jesse took a donkey. He loaded it with gifts, bread, a skin of wine, a young goat. And he sent them with his son David to Saul. So now Jesse's probably thinking, injustice! You only get three of my kids, my three oldest ones, who can serve in battle and die for you. Now you're taking my youngest too? What kind of king is this? He's breaking the rules. But you can't say no to the king. And that was the prophet's point back when he introduced the way of the king. This man's going to be a tyrant. He's going to take your families and your lands and your wealth. You asked for him. So here goes David. We're going to wrap up with this. Verse 21. David came to Saul and he entered his service. Now, at the end of chapter 17, we're going to see that Saul is a little bit confused about who David is. Keep in mind that, that Saul has a lot of people in his service. David is one among many. Just like he was one son among many. Saul liked him very much. And David became one of his armor bearers. He had a lot of armor bearers. He's the king. You you circle the king. You protect the king. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying this. Allow David to remain in my service for I'm pleased with him. Translated, I'm keeping your son and you don't have any choice. Okay? Verse 23. Whenever the spirit of God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better. And the evil spirit would lead him or would leave him. God takes care of his people. And he empowers his leaders for change. They're in a state of flux. They're in a state of transition. How is God taking care of his people in this time period? How can we say that? He's removing the tyrant. He's getting rid of the bad. He's removing the person that is preventing Israel from realizing their covenant blessings. He's taking that one out of power. So from the people's perspective, it seems like, great, we're going to be leaderless again. And now we have this crazy king. He's going to try to kill everybody. We're going to go to war. And we're just spiraling out of control again, back to the period of the judges. But in the unseen realm, God is working. And God is empowering his leaders, as we see here, Samuel and David, to take the reins and to lead the people of God into an uh, unprecedented period of prosperity, blessing, and peace. It's coming. We can't always see it. We're in the midst of change, and as Josh said in our banquet a couple of weeks ago, we lose the forest for the trees. 
But good things are coming. God takes care of his people. And he empowers his leaders for change. Remember those things as we move forward as a family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that even in the midst of our sin and chaos and the craziness of life, you don't leave us. You don't abandon us. You're working. And God, even in this really uncomfortable thing called change, when maybe it's not a sin issue at all, it's just change. You're still working. You don't abandon your people. You take care of us. And you empower your leaders to make that change, to make the right decisions. God, you give us wisdom and guidance and direction. And I'm so grateful that now we don't just have your spirit on us, we have your spirit in us, moving and working and building your church. God, I pray that my brothers and sisters here this morning would be encouraged by this word from the Old Testament. God, I pray that you would help us to see that you are, in fact, in control, even when things seem confusing and the way forward is unclear. A God who's always working, who never abandons his people. You're good to us. God, may we focus not on our situations or on the chaos of change, but on your goodness. For that's what gives us hope and propels us forward. We love you and we thank you for remembering us. Bless us this week, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.